0: borg 90 practice sketching and some listener emails on episode 401 of the actual astronomy podcast i'm chris and joining me is shane we're amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky and this podcast is for everybody who likes going out under the stars shane i was ecstatic to see that you had your borg 90 fl set up last night in your
1: yard how did that go <laughs> i was uh equally as ec- ecstatic um the conditions weren't the best, I would say the no. the wind was blowing um, out of the West, but you know, my house shields me from that. So it, it didn't impact like my comfort level, but it certainly impacted the sky a little bit. Although the seeing actually still was pretty darn good given the wind. Um, but there's also a little bit of high level kind of wispy cloud blowing by. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had what, probably close to a 50% moon, I think. Uh, however it was only minus five and it was somewhat clear, so I could not pass up the opportunity, uh, to take this little Borg out or is little the right word? Kind of. Little, yeah, it's, um, so. yeah, and, uh, just see how it did. And, um, probably spent about an hour, mostly in Orion, uh, did a little bit with Jupiter and the moon, but, um, I, I primarily use the 30 millimeter UFF uh, eyepiece from APM. Um, However, I also uh, put the Leica Zoom in there on occasion and I wanted to compare the 31 millimeter Nagler to the UFF. I really haven't done that uh, too extensively. So I was very curious, particularly in a fast telescope because this Borg 90 FL has a focal length of, uh, what is it, 500 millimeters, I think. So it's F 5.6. So, it's
0: a uh, ninety millimeter basically just under four inch and uh refractor pretty lightweight I think is is one of the big draws, if not the biggest draw for for this scope, but at f uh, five six, it's getting pretty fast for a scope that's almost four inches aperture and in a doublet,
1: yeah, yeah, it is very fast, and it is very light. um I forget what without the diagonal. So this is, you know, focuser rings, Vixen dovetail. I think it comes in around 2.4 kilos or it's kind of in that low two kilo uh, range. So it is quite light. Um, and, and I thought, you know, before observing, I thought if there was an eyepiece that would excel in this telescope, it would be the thirty-one millimeter Nagler, um, just because the Naglers are designed for faster telescopes, or you know they're they're renowned for that. And uh, I'll, I'll get to that performance, but it wasn't what I thought. Um, but with the UFF, uh, I have about a four-degree field of view, which you know easily frames the belt of Orion, uh, with quite a bit of room to spare on either side. And you know that is kind of a neat feeling. Um, you, you know as everybody knows, I'm more of a bino viewer guy and not so much into the wide fields, but I certainly do enjoy them when I am observing with two inch eyepieces. Um, I did a little bit of color checking you know just to see how it would render star color. And you know towards the the top of Orion is Phi 2 or Orionis, uh, which is kind of a like a fairly, prominent orange star. And, uh, it really was a nice blazing orange as was uh, Betelgeuse. Um, and the other thing I was really curious about with this FL is, is the edge performance, you know, again, being a faster telescope, sometimes, uh, the, the edge performance gets compromised a little bit. And if there was a knock that I read about the Borg 90 FL, it was, it was the edge performance. Mm-hmm. And, um, with the UFF, uh, keep in mind, I'm super sensitive to any kind of edge distortions in the field of view. I don't like them and it drives me insane when they're there. Um, I would say with the UFF about the outer 10% was starting to get a little soft, but like it really wasn't noticeable for me. I had to really look for it. Um, and, and it was just that the stars were not quite pinpoints. Uh, Um, like they didn't turn into seagulls or anything that bad. So that's why I say it's, it's. It really wasn't that noticeable, so it it did not bother me, and and the Leica was similar. Like I, I really didn't feel that the edge was compromised at all. Um, but here's where I got surprised by the Nagler. It sucked on the edges, <laughs> really? and I would say, like you know, the the Nagler too. In in all fairness, is quite a bit wider than the UFF. The UFF is seventy degrees, and I think the Nagler's eighty two or something like that, or eighty four. Mm. I forget what they build these things as. Um, and it was very noticeable, like the field, the, the, larger field of view of the Nagler was, was like, it made the UFF almost feel like a orthoscopic field of view. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I'd say the outer 20% or so was really not good at all and, mm-hmm. um, you know, you could focus it out, but then on axis, it's not great. And you know, I just didn't really like it. So the, the 31 Nagler really. I didn't use it much. Uh, I think it lived in the diagonal for a minute or two. And then I thought, well, forget this. I'm, I'm sticking with the UFF.
0: Yeah, I can, I get it. Um, cause when Mike brought his UFF out and we headed in my F6 refractor, my five inch F6, which is 750 millimeter focal length, comparing that to the mass Siemma, it was uh, pretty wild. Like how, how much sharper the UFF was mm. now on throughput. We noticed a significant difference. You you could mm-hmm. definitely see fainter, like nebulae. You could see fainter stars. There definitely mm-hmm. was more light transmission in the Masayama, but uh, I mean Mike will correct me if I'm wrong. But that that was sort of both of our our takes on it. But it was so surprising how how sharp that UFF was, and like you said, it is narrower. But it's one of those things where. They've they've threaded a nice line here with it. I mm-hmm. just wish I just wish it had a little bit more throughput because it was pretty obvious that it uh, it didn't pass as much light as some of these other eyepieces. I don't know why. Maybe that's just part of that design to to get it that sharp on the edges. They're doing something. I don't know.
1: Yeah, it might be, and and that is the one knock I've read against the UFF, uh, in particular uh, when comparing it to the thirty-one Nagler, is that the the Nagler has just a little bit more throughput, uh, more light comes through, uh, mm-hmm. but that the UFF lighter, sharper, and better eye relief. So you know, it's uh, it's one of those things. I, I I don't know if there's a perfect telescope or a perfect eyepiece. There, there's always a compromise. <laughs> we yeah, we found
0: the UFF. I mean, they they really have. An eyepiece there, and I could, at, at some point in time, I will probably own that as well as the Nagler 31, as well as the Masayama, because as, as a wide field junkie, I can really see a place for each of those eyepieces there. Mm-hmm. They each provide, um, something pretty interesting to, to your wide field kit, um, which may seem fairly redundant, but, uh, we're, we're talking about a decade long, uh, eyepiece case that I not, not something I'm sort of
1: filling up by the end of the year or anything like that. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, more, more details about the Borg, um, focus was really important, like to get a crisp focus. If you were like just a little bit out of focus, like outward motion or inward motion, star color would change. And that's some CA, you know, coming through at that fast focal length. Um, but I did put it on some bright stuff just to see if there was any chromatic aberration or, or any color that I could see. Uh, so I started with Jupiter, um, and really nothing there at all. Like Jupiter was beautiful. Um, I used the, uh, Leica ash, Ashfirk zoom at, uh, what does that thing go down to, I think 7.8 millimeter. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jupiter was quite beautiful, you know, banding, uh, nice rich color. Uh, I didn't spend a lot of time doing critical observation, uh, it was really just to check for color. And like I say, nothing that I could tease out and uh, you know, I probably should qualify this too. Like, I don't see a lot of color, uh, unless it's extreme, uh, through a refractor, even like acromats. Um, but I put it on the moon and there was, there was definitely some yellow along the the lunar limb, but like, I really, really had to try to see it. Like if I just had some glancing views of the moon, I don't think I would have noticed it, but because I was really looking for the color. Uh, I was able to see just a little bit, but, uh, outside of that, the moon was beautiful and I'm pretty sure the lunar straight wall was visible last night. Um, if it wasn't the lunar straight wall, it was something quite similar. <laughs> if
0: only uh, there was a podcast you could check for that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you find one, Chris, <laughs> let me know, please. <laughs> uh, then I moved on to Polaris. That was an easy split. Uh, M42 is kind of uninspiring, but that's just the light pollution. And maybe just a quick note to the, you know, the, uh, throughput of the UFF versus the Nagler. I just felt that under like light polluted skies, that wasn't, you know, that's not the sky to test that between the, the two eyepieces. So I would be curious to run that test, you know, at your site or, or somewhere else outside of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, you know, I'd say pretty successful first night. Uh, it's a good telescope. Um, I was a little nervous about it because if you check out some of the cloudy night threads, there's, there's some, you know, reports that weren't too favorable, but, um, those were earlier on, you know, in the Borg 90 FL's life cycle. So I don't know if there was just maybe some production problems back then or not, but anyway, this telescope, really good performer. Uh, I think I'll start working on getting the, uh, reducer installed. So it takes it down to F 3.6 and it also flattens the field, which I'm very mm-hmm. curious about too. So yeah, I'm very curious to hear about how that works out. Yeah. Yeah. I think that'll be pretty neat.
0: Cause the... I want to try my 22 Nagler when you take it down to three six, cause that, you know, mm-hmm. if we'll take two inches, then that would be, that would be the eyepiece I would think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be pretty incredible. You know, it, it would introduce a problem though, like. Kind of with any of our small scopes and and because this 90FL is so darn light, there is some balance issues for sure, you know, using, especially using the Nagler and, um, putting in that, uh, reducer, like it, it basically just screws into the focuser. So that's mm-hmm. putting more weight at that end of the telescope. And, uh, you know, it's not, it's not unsolvable, but it'll certainly become, uh, or, you know, the balance issues will become uh, more noticeable. Just stick it uh, on my mount. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> no problem. Uh, yeah, and and I'm super curious to see your 40 uh, millimeter XW in yeah. it. Um, yeah. Just to see how the edge performance is with, with the ultimate wide field there. Yeah. Um. And, you know, if all of this works out and I keep this telescope, I, I kind of think, you know, the ultimate loadout here would be probably like the 40 millimeter XW, the Lake Ash uh, Zoom, and then maybe a Nagler 3.6 millimeter or 3 to 6 millimeter yeah. zoom. And, you know, all of that would fit in a pretty small kit, which is pretty intriguing. But uh, I'm still trying to decide if I'm going to keep this thing. It, it's just, it's it it's kind of redundant with a lot of the other telescopes that I have right now. You know, the, the TSA-102 uh, is still probably my primary uh, telescope to take to a dark sky site. Mm-hmm. Um, my 76 TAC-DCU... Uh, With the Q extender installed is probably my favorite for the backyard. It just, it really excels on double stars and planets. Um, my Borg 71 FL is probably my best grab and go lightweight travel scope. So the 90 is sort of a, a weird, a weird scope in the stable right now. Like if I keep it, I think I have to get rid of one of the other ones. Cause there's just overlap. And I think if I kept it, I'd stop using one of the other ones anyway. Yeah. So, uh, so more to come on that, but, uh, yeah, overall it was, a it was a fun night and I'm excited to give it a try under a darker sky and just see how it performs. Yeah. I've, this is like
0: probably one of those long, wished for scopes on my list because with that focal length of being 500 milliliter millimeters, and then the, you know, that gives you the ability to have such wide fields of view, uh, and, and a fairly color free scope, even by the, the worst reports, um, you know, it gives you some decent planetary performance and I often use like a contrast booster anyway, which mm-hmm. really knocks out the, uh, any kind of secondary color. Anyway, so it it really to me, it sounds like an ideal travel scope. Ninety millimeters is just
1: where things just start to look so good, you know, yeah, yeah, it, that that aperture is beautiful the The downside to making it like my travel scope compared to my seventy one f l is that it does need a beefier mount um and and one of the things I love about the seventy one fL is you could almost handhold it. It's just so light, yeah, um, but the the thing that I'm really really intrigued now uh, with the 90 FL would be the reducer getting it down to 3.6, mm-hmm. but also they have a, a 1.4 times teleconverter, which I think also flattens the field, um, and and so then you can have the option of taking it up to like a f 7.8 basically. Right. Um, so like the versatility of the scope is super intriguing Yeah. and, uh, because it's Borg and modular, you know, I think that I can unscrew some of the, the, uh, tube sections and I think I should be able to natively Bino view without having to use any kind of Barlow or anything like that as well. So, um, I'm certainly going to put it through the paces, um. Probably all summer, really, uh, you know, before I make a real decision of keeping or selling or selling something else. But for now, I'm, I'm enjoying it. Yeah. And I mean,
0: you lose some aperture, but if you, if you get it to work with the 2-inch eyepieces at f 36 see, with a 32-millimeter mass Yama, you'll get 10-degree true field of view. So that means it's probably running uh, maybe at around like that 50-millimeter um, point ish maybe even less maybe like 45 millimeters or something like with your eye acting as a bit of an aperture stop but uh-huh. but that still is something like do you know what i mean
1: yeah yeah well it would be interesting to look through it and just yeah take in a 10 degree field of view That would that yeah because that's what that's what my 50
0: millimeter acromat f5 does mm-hmm. but then this this would be flat and it would be uh apochromatic ish <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so that that has a lot of tricks up its sleeve, that little scope,
1: I think. Yeah, it really does. And I, I can't understate or yeah, uh, just how compact that thing is. It doesn't look like a 90 millimeter class telescope to me. It yeah. just it's so small, especially when you retract the dew shield, there's not much there. It it just it it, it is so portable. It is so light, and and I can still lighten it up a little bit more because I think I mentioned on uh, one of our previous episodes. Right now, it has like a draw tube for like coarse focusing, which I don't need. Um, it, like the the Borg focuser that I have on there um, is a dual speed focuser, and it has more than enough uh, draw tube to you know, achieve focus with anything that I've put in there so far, Mm -hmm. but that draw tube adds a considerable amount of weight compared to just getting like a a normal kind of OTA tube section to replace that. Yeah. So, um, once I do that, it'll be probably right around that two kilo mark, um, you know, without a diagonal in there, which is just mind blowing for a 90 millimeter telescope. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So that was my night, Chris. Very cool. And what focuser is on it again? Uh, so Borg has, uh, it's a two inch Borg focuser. It's, I think it's a Crayford focuser, uh, two speed, the, the 10 to one ratio, I believe. And it's rotatable. It's, uh, it's very good. I was really pleased with the performance of that focuser. It also, like it came with, uh, the, the, the helical focuser, two inch helical. Mm. But I just, I'm not a huge fan of those helical focusers. Mm. I've, every time I've used them, they... They like just focusing them causes too much vibration. And, yeah. uh, but if you want the ultimate lightweight set up, you, that's it. Like you yeah. put the helical in there and you shave even more weight off of the two inch focuser, uh, like the Crayford focuser.
0: Yeah, I see. Like, it's just such a, it's just such a versatile scope, like, and I think that's where maybe some people sold it short is that if, if you're going to plunk it down next to like a TAC 100 DC um and look at i don't know like venus <laughs> like let's pick, pick something really challenging then yeah i mean you're you're going to say well why would i ever use this ta- borg scope versus the takaha but the um you know the ability to have all those different configurations mm-hmm. to to be so portable and like it's it very much is is like one scope you could own you know and what, what appeals to me so much about the Borg Nani fl is that I knew somebody that had the old uh, Takahashi Sky 90, mm. which this one is, I think, somewhat loosely based on-ish. And uh, I remember that scope. I just thought it was so neat because it was so small. Now, that one was heavy, but small, same size. And just the, the size of the scope with the images that it provided was just ridiculous. Like it was hard to believe that a scope that, you know, looked like it was more of a finder scope than a telescope could, uh, you know, could, could show you such great detail on, on uh, Mars, for example. Yeah. It was just Mm -hmm. fantastic. So, you know, I, I think there's a, that telescope is just such a, such a neat scope. And then that it, I think it is sort of like that biggest ultimate, portable scope because it can can really fit in the in the case and be portable and i've thought of it quite a bit because it's still less expensive than the takahashi fs60 and because of that it it does have an appeal for me and then if you can take it down and get that focal reducer working with it to get those ultimate wide fields it's uh man that is a really really neat and capable telescope for for taking especially to the you know South and seeing uh, you know at a and mm-hmm. those really wide field things that would just
1: be wild, yeah, yeah, it really would um yeah it's it's fun to play with, and you know your mention of the the sky ninety um like my one of my bino viewing mentors uh that's that's what he used was a, a ninety millimeter uh sky or sky ninety ninety millimeter. <laughs> Uh, from TAC, uh, I never looked through it because he was way out east uh, or Eastern Canada. But um, uh, the fact that he did use it almost exclusively, you know, has me wanting to try vinyl viewing too with this one. Yeah, I
0: would. I'm I'm curious. I'm curious to see it. Still, uh, yeah, I'm still trying to hunt down a second scope bracket for my scope. I think that the uh, bracket for my mount, my eq 6 um, it has the main bracket for attaching telescopes, but then the secondary bracket, so that you can use one as kind of in place of a counterweight. It's, um, it's missing the central screw. I don't think it was ever in it because it looks, the whole thing looks just completely brand new. Mm. And so I'm trying to hunt down a replacement for it. I just don't think anybody ever really mounted much to it or used it much, just in the previous two owners. Right. And so probably just it it went unnoticed or something, I'm guessing. So I don't know because it is missing that. But uh, Skywatcher keeps saying, oh, email us back in a month kind of thing. But I don't know. Maybe I'll put like a want ad up or something. But it kind of sucks because that's one of the main things I wanted to do. But probably the Sky 90 would or the Borg 90 would be fine. I've been putting my. 60 fs 60 up on it when i've used it and it's been fine but uh yeah i'd love to get your fl your non-efl app and then take a look through that and compare it to the uh takahashi's that would be pretty cool
1: yeah, yeah, that would be really neat actually. And especially if I ran it with the teleconverter at 1.4 times to give it that 7.8 focal length, the yeah. focal ratio, that's getting yeah. it now kind of close to the tack, and in that regard. And it'd mm-hmm. be neat to see that. And I, you know, again, there's just so many different ways to configure this thing. It, it would probably be neat to run it against the TACs and all of those configurations we just talked about.
0: Yeah, I do, I like the Borgs. I'd like to get another one, I would. At some point in time, but we'll see. I was looking, they had a, there was a, a, a very lightly used, in fact, the person said it was unused, Borg 89 that had been for sale this week. And I was, I was sort of longing at that, thinking that would be cool to get and then compare against this one. It's not FL, it's ED Mm -hmm. at uh, 89 millimeter F 6.7, both these, but that scope's out of production. But I thought that, that could be a neat scope as well. Apparently it's okay on the planets and F 6.7 is a nice, uh, focal length to give a nice exit people with a 40 millimeter.
1: Well, and you know, our, our little 50 millimeter mini Borgs that really opened my eyes to the quality that, uh, of Borg. And like, I know mm-hmm. I've looked through your 125 before and that's an incredible telescope too, but I really had low expectations for the, the super fast 50 millimeter mini Borg Acromat, mm-hmm. but it blew me away how good it was. Uh, Mm -hmm. So like the 89ED would not, you know, worry me at all. I'm sure that would be just a phenomenal telescope.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They're not quite for everybody because they have, they have pushed those um, focal links a little bit on the short side. I know in the re-release to the, I never really seen any kind of field tests yet. I think it's been out for most of a year, but that, uh, when they re- reissued the 125, they went back to F six, four from F six, which mine is. Um, and I can kind of understand why they did that because you, when you're using it, you do get the feeling that they just kind of pushed it a little, I've made aperture stops and that sort of thing. And I don't, it doesn't bother me really. I like it. I'm glad I got an F six, but, uh, yeah, I can see why they went back to the F six, four. That's probably really like peak, uh, optimum focal ratio for visual and then they just tweak the focal reducer to get it down to whatever it is F4 blah 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 you know mm-hmm. so but yeah I really like the 125 it's it's a neat scope I like F6 I think that's my favorite focal ratio
1: yeah yeah well it works well Um kind of best of both worlds to a certain degree you get some wide field and but you get you know enough correction that Hopefully there's not too much CA. Yeah. Yeah. I've been doing some practice sketching. Cool. Just what thing. what kind Just of teaching. practicing? What yeah. is it like styles or objects or
0: all that kind of stuff? Okay. So I've been talking to uh, Alex Massey. He's a sketcher from Australia. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about like some of his sketches and how he goes about it. And I was having a little trouble with with a few things. Some of them I've worked out, some of them I haven't quite worked out yet. So, uh, one of the things I'm kind of struggling a bit, and I, I'm really, I really think it's coming down to the type of chalk that I'm using with mm. a white chalk. It just doesn't, the stuff that I have doesn't really layer that well. And so you can't create some of the finer structures. It just all seems to end up blending for me. But anyway, so I ordered some, some new chalk. It's coming in the mail because I don't carry it in Canada for some reason. And then the other things that I've been working on are getting like, how do you represent like a dark nebula? So I've been Uh kind of working on that. I'm, you know, have some mixed results. And then the one, the one thing I've gotten to work out pretty good is just representing like a very rich star field. Mm -hmm. That is tough. I found that really difficult because You know, when you're observing, especially with like low power wide field, like say with the 60 millimeter F6, which is giving me like almost eight degrees, like seven and a half degree true field. You know, you can see like multiple star clouds and, you know, some of the star clouds are pretty detailed with so many stars in them. And it's like, I, in the past and and still, I found it impossible to try to represent that. So I've made this, uh, this little tool. I, I went through all kinds of different like thoughts in my head and then I had just, it, it occurred to me late one night that what I should do is get a bunch of the white charcoal pencils because you use those anyway. Mm-hmm. And then to, to put a bunch of, um, like I have some odd sized, what are they called? Blending stumps. And so I put these odd sized blending stumps in and amongst them to create like this random spacing and then you know, sharpen them up and then use that as a, as a tool to try to create the, uh, the star clouds. And I think, I think the, the, the rich star fields, like I put a couple images there in, I think they're coming along. Like if you sort of zoom in on them, you can see like, and this is just like only a couple minutes of work, putting those star fields in. Which otherwise would be just, I don't know, you, you, it would take you three sittings to do it. Cause you'd be so sore mm. after punching away with a single uh, pencil for that long.
1: Yeah. 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 No, it, it definitely, uh, like, like to your comment of it's coming along, totally agree. Looks, uh, looks pretty solid.
0: Yeah. It's pretty neat. So it kind of gives you like, so these are, what I'm doing is I'm copying, um, some of E.E. Barnard's photographs ish, more or less copying them. And I kind of know the fields as well. So I'm sort of playing around with that too. And then, uh, yeah, sort of putting in these, uh, these rich star fields because those are just really wide field Milky Way images is is what they are from his uh, photographic atlas of the Milky Way that I have. And then, yeah, it it's just kind of a bit of a process to, to represent those, you know, seemingly millions of points of light. I'm not putting them all in <laughs> because I might as well just use white paper and then try to put in the black almost, right? But mm-hmm. yeah, anyway, so that's yeah, kind of, kind of a, of a neat thing to to go through, and then yeah, playing around with some different pencils and that to represent the the nebula. The one there on the left, that's uh, Rorafiuki. You can see like M4 is in the bottom.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So that uh, I drew that in, but the rest of it, the rest of it's just using these this little tool that I that I kind of made up. So yeah, it's kind of a neat thing to do because you need to you need to figure out and refine some of these techniques outside of when you're trying to observe and do this, because I I found it's impossible to try to figure some of this stuff out at the eyepiece. You'll just, you'll never do it, or at least I will never do it. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's just too much messing around with stuff where you're just going to end up like wasting your night. You're not going to observe. You're not going to do much sketching. You're just going to be messing around in the dark with, Pencils and stuff, and that—that's no fun. So this is this is just working off my kitchen table, really. But yeah, I think I've I've made a few discoveries, and I'm trying to sketch like an hour or so every night. So yeah, trying to get some of this stuff down because it's figuring out the technique. That's one thing, but then with the astro sketching, like in my opinion, anyway, you need to be quick. Like otherwise, it's just too. I find it just too painful if you can't do it fast. So. They're not, uh, my goal is not to make perfect sketches, but to be able to sketch fairly accurately and represent fairly accurately and very quickly. So the one on the left is just uh like maybe 20, 25 minutes. So okay. Okay. Trying to get it down. Like, and as you can see, this is a lot, this is a lot to get down that quick. So again, it's yeah. not perfect,
1: but. Yeah. What's the desired time frame like do you do you have like that 20 established? Minutes, like 15
0: yeah. to 20 minutes is kind of my that's that's what you want to do because mm-hmm. then you can do three an hour.
1: Oh yeah okay
0: which doesn't sound like a lot so if I observe for if I observe for three hours then I'm only getting I mean I'll never do nine sketches. Usually I'm doing six or seven sketches in like in a two and a half or three hour session because I'll take a break in there somewhere too. Yeah, but and then you got to find the stuff, right? So, if if it takes you much longer than that, like if it takes you thirty or forty minutes to do a sketch, then you're only doing two or three. And I was down to two or three for a while, and it's just too long for me, anyway. Like everybody's different. This is just my own Mm -hmm. to to get to get sketching what I want to sketch. And this is like telescopic sketching. Uh, If I'm just doing binoculars, it's like five six minutes. It's the way it's gonna be if you wanna because a lot of the time people will say, Oh, well, you can't sketch all this stuff because you'll never get the clear nights to do it. And it's true, like if you spend hours doing each sketch, which some people do, and it's great. That's cool. Like it all depends on like some people want to sketch. And that's one thing I was thinking of is to take longer to sketch certain things. But to be honest, for me anyway, and my abilities, it the longer I take to sketch something, almost like the worse it becomes. Like I don't know why that is, but it's better if I just take a shorter amount of time to do it and then go on to the next thing. And what, cause what ends up happening is, is that I find some of my sketches, like like to the point where some of them come out really well I'm happy with them. And then some of them don't. So if I spend like half or all night sketching one thing and it doesn't turn out and that happens on two or three nights in a row, I will never do it again. I will just give up. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. So I'd rather spend a short amount of time, do like six or seven sketches. And out of those, if I get two that are really good, I'm happy. So I've got the two really good sketches. And then I've got these other sketches, which sometimes I'll just take inside and then work on them the next day. And so usually out of a session like that, I'll get four pretty good ones. And then I've got a bunch of other sketches of the things too. Usually the stuff that maybe I wasn't that interested in anyway or you know, it's good practice, right? Eventually they'll, they all come along. So they all end up being better anyhow. So that's mm-hmm. my process. Yeah.
1: Oh, very cool. People have been asking about it. So this is, this is me talking about it. I need yeah. Well, I think Go it's ahead. good for people to hear that too, you know, just, uh, especially the practice side of things. Um, you know, for, for me, I probably would have just assumed I could keep going out observing and just get better that way. But I'm sure the doing it indoors, uh, accelerates the whole process.
0: Yeah, well, I was like, Alex was talking to me about this. And so Alex Massey is a really experienced sketcher. He's been and I I think he's an artist or very artistic anyway. Uh, I'm not in general. And uh, so he said now that most of the, like you get to a point where you will learn a lot, like no matter how much or how little sketching you do at the eyepiece, you can learn tons. But you do get to a point where it's very difficult to learn anymore at the eyepiece. Just because of the nature of it, I guess, just because you're in the dark and it, like, I can see that now just trying to massage out some of these details and, and why sometimes I'm getting good ones and why I'm not, it kind of brings it to light. Cause you're sort of able to see how you're creating it, but in the dark, it's a little bit obscured, right? Cause it's dark. And so yeah. sometimes you can't quite see why things aren't turning out, but now I've kind of, I've kind of got it a little bit sorted out why some of the stuff hasn't been turning out versus I don't know that I'd ever figured it out in the dark because you just can't see, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, but, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a process. Um, had some emails here. We don't have too many, but Clint, uh, wrote, I'll just sort of, uh, give the Coles notes on this one. Clint said, uh, I- I'm heading south to observe with a group and wondering if I should make a list or just observe along with others and what they are observing. I I had some thoughts on the Shane off the top. Do you have any thoughts on that? Would you make a list or just sort of observe along with others? If you were going with a group?
1: Um, you know, personally I would make a list, um, mm-hmm. just to make sure that if there was some objects, you know, that I really, really want to see. That I, you know, make a plan to see them if I could. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, you know, I don't think either is a bad choice. Um, there's been many nights when we go out observing, and I just get a lot of satisfaction in looking through other people's telescopes and not having to think about what to look at or find an object. So yeah. I don't think either is wrong. Uh, but. If, if Southern Hemisphere observing is, is like a unique opportunity or or maybe the only time you'll do it, yeah, uh, make sure you don't come back with regrets. So, you know, if there's yeah. some key objects, make sure you get them.
0: Yeah. The other thing I've run into is sometimes I've thought that and then like I've gone observing with like Rick and Mike and Mark and uh, pretty serious observers. And then I'm um, like maybe I'm just busy at work and I'm trying to organize the event or whatever. And then I'm like, oh, and then. Like sometimes they're all pretty focused and I'm like, Ooh, I guess I'll just sort of figure out what I'm going to observe because sometimes that can happen, uh, as well. But having spent some time thinking I was going to the Southern hemisphere, but my plans got scuttled. Um, I've done a lot of research and I have a few books and recommendations. Uh, mm-hmm. I have all, but one of these, but I really should get the, the other one cause it's been reprinted for cheap. Um. So my recommendations for anybody going to the Southern Hemisphere is if you're, if you're going to get one thing, I would say get, um, the Southern Gems book, which mm-hmm. is part of the Deep Sky Companions by Stephen James O'Meara. That one, I, you know what, after reading that book, I almost wish that he would go back and redo the other ones like that one.
1: Oh, really? Why is it's that? It's
0: like the pinnacle of his writing mm. and I don't know. There's something about that one. It's just really good. I've read like pretty much the whole thing, even though I never even ended up going south. Uh, but that one is just a really good observing book. It just has to be with Southern sky objects and he's got 120
1: of them in there. Mm-hmm. So. That, that's what I used when I was prepping my, uh, like my recent trip down to Cuba, not Southern hemisphere, but you know, much further south than where we are now. I used, uh, Omira's book to, to yeah. help build that list.
0: Second one is Hartung's Objects for Southern
1: Telescopes. H a r t u n g s. Hartung. Yeah, that's a great one. And and even if you're, I think you mentioned this one time, Chris. Even if you're just a Northern Hemisphere observer, there's a number of objects in that book for Northern Hemisphere observers that are or that are visible up here. And it's just it's a very good guide book. It's well written and and. Uh, I think anybody can get a uh, value out of that one.
0: Do you have a copy of that one? I do. And where did you get your
1: copy? Same place you did there. Okay. Was that uh like a reprint out of Australia or something like that? It's
0: not a reprint.
1: It's a print, which oh, is, the, okay.
0: I, I know it's uh, kind of wild because it, typically Hartings will run you about $400 US used. Oh. Um, But Harting's Objects for Southern Telescopes is printed by the Melbourne University Press. That is the publisher. And what you do is you just order it from there and it's $55.
1: Yeah. Yeah. When you mentioned that, I jumped on it. Um, Because sometimes these astronomy books go out of print and then you have to pay ridiculous prices if you want it. So uh, I did not want that one to slip through my fingers.
0: Yeah. And it's, I believe it's their own press and they do like a little bit of a print on demand with it and they keep mm. a bunch on the shelf and then when they run low, they print up another 25 or 30 copies or whatever, but that book is well worth owning 100%. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one by Omira would be the Caldwell Objects simply because many of the Caldwell Objects are in the southern skies, so that's that. Mm-hmm. And then um, I think this one, if you're looking for... Just that list. This one is really, really perfect, I think. Uh, Alan Whitman's Southern Splendors list of 78 targets in the RASC Observer's Handbook. It's in the US edition as well. And I think it's worth buying the book and having that, or figuring out what that list, it's not available digitally in any format. Um, Alan has some other lists that are up now on the Okanagan Center website, which I also wanna explore. They look pretty awesome, and uh, Alan is a—he's—he's uh, he's one of the associate editors or something like that for Sky and Telescope magazine, where he gets articles in once in a while, kind of like Howard Banach. Should get Alan on the show sometime. Anyhow, this this list that he's drafted above seventy-eight targets is really nice because he knows that people will be going kind of, sort of in the winter time or early fall. I guess those are like the ideal times to go to Australia or other places. And because of that, um, that list is a list that you can go and observe all those targets on versus uh, if you try to pick some targets, of course, some will be rising or setting and might be tough to get. Uh, but Alan makes sure that he uh, he's edited it down so that you're able to uh, capture those targets.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
0: I think that one's well worth it. And then a, a good reference book. I don't know if you could take this one with you or not as the night sky observer's guide volume three, but that's mm. really a desk
1: reference. Yeah. That one's pretty beefy, a uh, great book. I love the whole series, uh, but they are a little larger. I don't think I would use that at the telescope.
0: No, but it could be good for prep for prepping. I think.
1: For sure. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: All right. And uh, so Clint, be sure to write us when you uh, get back. We're looking forward to hearing about your observing sessions.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Kevin wrote and sent a photo of his 12 inch light bridge, which uh, was a telescope you're quite familiar with Shane. So do you want to give this one
1: a read? Yeah, for sure. Um, So he just says, uh, dear Chris and Shane wanted to say hello and tell you how much I've been enjoying the podcast. Uh, I discovered you guys about three weeks ago and I've been listening to you on my way to work and back every day since. Uh, Let me tell you a little about myself and why I'm listening so intently. Uh, I have been an amateur astronomer on and off uh, since my dad gave me a small used department store refractor for Christmas when I was 16. Uh, That would be 1978, I guess. I still have it and I should send you photos of it sometime. It still functions pretty well, though optically it is nothing special. I keep it around for sentimental reasons. Uh, When I say on and off, that's kind of how I enjoy my hobbies. I have too many of them. I can relate to this, Chris. Uh, And I obsess over one of them for a few years until I get worn out and then I switch to the other one. Uh, uh, I know many of your listeners can relate. Uh, Even though I get distracted uh, by other interests for a while, I always come back to astronomy. Uh, We built our house out in the country under dark skies, uh, low border border for skies. Uh, Back in 2012, I bought myself a Meade 12-inch light bridge Dobsonian and it blew my mind. I can also relate to that. Uh, What just happened here? Jumped. Uh, Sorry, I just have to find my place. um, There we go. Uh, I started finding my way around the night sky and I've really enjoyed it, but now I want more of a challenge. So I've decided to get into astrophotography big time. I'm probably five years away from retirement, so I've decided to build an observatory this summer and make that my main retirement hobby. I've been researching telescopes and equipment for about three months and I've loved every minute of it. You know, the best thing about buying something is the research leading up to it. There's a lot to learn when it comes to astrophotography. I'm probably going to end up with a plane wave CDK14 mounted in my observatory for deep sky objects and a large refractor that I can take out to star parties and dark sky sites for wide field shots and planets. Uh, I've, I've been looking for, or looking at the ASCAR 151 PHQ for that purpose, but nothing has been decided yet. Chris, I've really enjoyed listening to you talk about your new observatory. Uh, I've rambled on long enough. Uh, again, big thanks for the podcast. Keep up the good work. Clear skies, Kevin. Thanks, Kevin. That's, uh, that's
0: really nice. I'm glad, uh, yeah, a few people have asked, uh, uh, or mention that they they've enjoyed hearing about the observatory, so that's good. I'm glad a lot of people have. Sometimes I feel like I ramble on a bit. Should should do one once I get it all finished up here in early summer, and uh, that'd be cool. The the one thing that stuck out to me on Kevin's email, though, Shane, was that, um, not really sure how much astrophotography Kevin has done. And I don't know if he's looking for advice in this or not, but my advice is free and worth every penny. Because I went down this when I started in mm-hmm. astronomy, I wanted to do astrophotography, like many people. Mm-hmm. And um, I, what I decided to do first was be, because I didn't have money, I needed to do something. I want to do some astronomy, so I, I decided that I would learn the sky and figure out my way around, and you know, get some telescopes and you know, learn learn about astronomy and learn how to do it before you know I you know needed to get a job so I could afford to do the imaging side of things. Um, and then, so a couple of years down the road, I did get a camera and some other stuff and I did take some shots, but I found that uh, I just didn't enjoy it as much as as going out and looking through the telescopes. And so, uh, I, I don't know, Kevin, I'm assuming maybe you've done some already, but if if you're going that way, I would really recommend trying out uh, a little bit first if you haven't, but maybe you have, I'm just, I'm just kind of shooting it out there just simply because that was, that was my experience. And I really enjoy looking at Astro images. I, I think it's awesome and appreciate what people are doing. It's just for me personally, um, I just enjoyed, uh, you know, being out around the stars, looking at the, at the stuff, you know, now doing some sketching and that sort of thing. But, uh, for me, that's the way it was. And Shane, you, you're kind of a little bit of a
1: blend of the two, I think. Yeah, I'm, I don't really consider myself too much of an astro photographer, but you um, can do it. Like
0: when I look at you t- taking photos, and they're pretty good photos, I think. I'm like, Shane yeah. can really do this,
1: you know? Yeah. So, so you know, my approach to astrophotography was like using the Kiss principle of keeping it simple, and um. Uh, I was all about just long exposure, but single frames. I was not getting into the stacking and the flats and the whatevers, yeah. uh, to help make your images amazing just because I wasn't that interested and mm-hmm. I appreciate everybody that does do the, that, you know, work and that level of effort, but it just wasn't for me. So I have a little tracker, uh, for, you know, a DSLR camera, uh, Skywatcher makes them. And I was doing like five minute exposures, wide field exposures of the Milky Way from the grasslands. And, And you know, I think, yeah, I was quite pleased. And, and one of the, um, you know, one of the like things that enabled me to do single frame shots like that is you have to have exceptionally dark skies, Mm. um, because often, you know, some of that processing, uh, is getting rid of, you know, the unwanted light. And down there, any light that hits the camera sensor is from the stars. So it's uh, it's a neat, it's a neat opportunity. And I had fun doing it, but I don't know, my interest in that has kind of waned. Yeah. And you know, that's just the thing is is that
0: not not everybody's going to want to do that. It's it is super cool and I can appreciate it. And even since like my early attempts, I should, I should clarify and say I've gone out on three or four occasions to do photos with people who are like really good astro imagers just because I had the opportunity. And maybe I wanted, there was a couple of times I wanted some photos of some stuff and people said, well, come out with me and we'll take some photos. And so, yeah, you know, put my money where my mouth is and went and did it and man, like I have so much respect for people to do this. So like I'm not, I am not knocking this. So people shouldn't get me wrong. And I'm not trying to convince people not to do it. People shouldn't read that either, but holy smokes, like it's hard. It's a lot of work and it is just a very different experience under the stars. Like to me, it just felt more like work and you're working with technology in a way that is to me anyway, for what I do for work, it's just too similar. Like it's, it's almost, you know, it's very, very similar to what I do day to day. And I just was like, mm, no, <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. not doing this. Mm-hmm. All good. All good. But I, I wish uh, Kevin the best of luck. And, uh, I would certainly love to see some photos taken through a 14 inch plane wave. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding. Pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, speaking of images, I really like Jim and the images that he sends. We frequently get uh, emails from him and he sent us uh, a couple shots of, uh, well, the moon, one is the Earth shine and then one is without the, the Earth shine of like, uh, looks like about a three or four day old moon or something like that. Hey, Jim says, uh, let me share a composite image from Monday this last week that emerged while I was setting up my 80 millimeter refractor to work on uh, Orion project. 17 very short stack generated Earth shine images on top of a 50% Stack of about a minute of video images led to the bottom crescent. Well, we see this earth shine quite often. I think this may be the first time I captured such an image. Thanks again for bringing so much light to so many people's astronomy journey. Thank you for sharing your images, Jim. I just, this is so cool. I'm not sure why I like this image so much, but something to do with the way that he framed the two shots. Like he kind of has the shot of, you know, a thin crescent. Um, But it's, you know, sort of point it down, almost like dead center in the uh, image. And then he has like, um, I'm guessing it's from just before or just after, uh, but much smaller and sort of inlaid towards the top of that same crescent, but showing the earth shine. This is just super
1: cool. Yeah, it's a neat image how he combined the two, Um, just to kind of give you both perspectives of what the moon probably looked like that night.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much. And Jay sent uh, a short email. He asked if, uh, well, he said during one of your recent episodes, you asked uh, for a few suggestions for future recordings. One listener's email suggested a segment on Big Dobsonians Well, being a jealous type and a 30-year plus Schmidt-Cassegrain user. I'd love to hear your thoughts and maybe some guests about Schmidt- Cassegrain's. And he sent a suggestion for somebody to have on. Um, Thanks for the email, Jay. Thanks for the suggestion. I did write the person, who you said um, would make a great gust. I totally agreed with you. I as yet have not heard back. I think it's been four or five days now. So um, I do find that to be honest, Shane. Like sometimes, you know, people will write in. Typically, I do try to contact the people that uh, are suggested. Probably, mm-hmm. you know, uh, more than half the time. It just depends. And then, um, yeah, a lot of the time, I just don't hear back. So, and the reason why. I often am reluctant to do it is that if, if we have people, especially listeners or other people that we know who are getting in touch, or we might want to get in touch with, I tend to side a little bit more towards having those people on simply because I know they're going to come on. Um, and, and it does take some time and effort to try to arrange these things versus, you know, when I am writing people just, uh, cold calling them kind of thing. Mm -hmm. We're not, we don't have a good batting average on that. I, I, Don't think we've had very many of those individuals actually uh, come on the show. Typically it's when people find out about us and they reach out, Um, that's always best. And we have to get off because we have a guest coming up here in a few minutes
1: who did just that, so I'm just going to ask if you have anything to add Shane, and then we'll get on our merry way. Yeah, maybe just one more quick one here. Um, Phil from the UK often sends us audio messages and he had one suggestion for a show of, uh, listing, you know, what are the top Bino viewing objects uh, okay. to look at or what should you look at through a Bino viewer? And, uh, you know, my response and, and you know, everybody's different, but for me, it's all of them. Um, yeah. you know, to me, all objects I prefer to use a Bino viewer with now, some will tell you you should stick with brighter things like bright globulars and planets. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're thinking about bino viewing to me, they, they, you know, are usable for pretty much every object in the sky. So, um, that was my response to Phil. And I thought I'd just throw that into this Thanks. episode too. Thanks listeners for listening. Please subscribe, share the show with
0: other stargazers you know, and send us your show ideas, observations, and questions to actual astronomy at gmail.com.
1: Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.